Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Hello, passionate listeners and watchers. Welcome to Passion Harvest. I am Louisa, your host. Thank you so much for joining us wherever you are in the world right now. I'm really excited about our guest today, Dr. Judith Rabinor. Dr. Judith Rabinor learned to make peace with her mother. Master therapist Dr. Judy Rabinor reveals the mysteries of the mother-daughter relationship, the most complex, intense and important of all relationships, the one between mothers and daughters. She explains how we can forgive hurtful and hindering imperfections and restore painful experiences with love and compassion and grow through healing our childhood wounds. Parenting is fragile and it's never too late to understand ourselves and our mothers. Dr. Judith Rabinor is a clinician, author, writing coach, speaker and workshop leader and author of three books. Her latest book is called The Girl in the Red Boots, Making Peace with My Mother. This is her story and this is her passion. Dr. Judith Rabinor, so honoured and excited to have you on the show today. Welcome to Passion Harvest. So fundamental and important, the mother-daughter relationship. Um, do you mind discussing that a little bit and how important it is to our development? I don't mind discussing it at all because once you write a book on something, I mean, <laughs> mulling over this, this um, topic for decades, literally decades. I have to say, perhaps me included, but so many people have, I don't know, I don't know, I'm probably using the wrong word, unhealthy relationships with their mother or their parent. How, I mean, how do we understand ourselves more and what are your tips and tools of forgiving and um, evolving well, ourselves? Well, one of the things is, is that we have a fantasy about a perfect mother right. and any of us who have been in any other relationships, such as a marriage mm. or our parents, ourselves, we know there is no perfect relationship. And yet um, we have to really keep in mind our mothers were our first lovers and our first heartbreaks, even the good yeah. enough mother. Isn't that a lovely I way? I love that. I know. You know, if, I mean, I think people struggle because if they didn't have an abusive mother who was mean, sometimes they wonder, why am I carrying these stories around about my mother, the way she disappointed me? And I think it's because in the beginning, we just have mothers who take such good care of us they hold us, they nurture us, they rock us, they soothe us, they feed us, they expect really zero from us. I mean, the job of the mother is to provide safety and nourishment and nurturance. And if you're lucky enough, you got somebody who did that enough of the time. Then we hit uh, the terrible twos, let's say, and even before then. 
when all of a sudden our mothers have to say, no, no, you can't eat dessert before you have dinner. And no, you can't get up at five o'clock in the morning. Stay in that crib. You know, I'm sleeping. I'm sleeping. I want you to be quiet. Uh, and the road, you have to stay out of the road. A mother sees their child running into the road. What does she do? Gives them a yank, maybe gives them a leave, a pull on the arm. And so we start out with a mother who is giving us everything. And we wind up with a mother who has to say no, who has to set boundaries. Um, you know, I, when I do certain presentations, I have a picture of a mother and a child. And it's the picture of the all loving, nurturing mother. But that's not who that mother is at five o'clock in the morning when she's getting up for the third time, right? Like the when Hallmark getting, card. Yeah, like the Hallmark card. None of us are Hallmark cards and we don't have any Hallmark relationships in our life. And those people, and when you go to an anniversary party and somebody's been married for 40 years, they so, say, oh, believe me, it wasn't easy, right? I mean, what do most people say? It's not easy to have an enduring smooth relationship, but our expectations of our mothers are often so unrealistic. And it's so true what you said before, whether it's a lover or other relationships, are you suggesting or saying that we place too many, too many expectations on what a mother should be like? We do. And we even do that with our lovers. Let's think when you meet somebody, I mean, I recently, I have a patient and she met somebody new and she has been divorced once, and yet she says, this guy seems perfect. Right. But we know that's an illusion. We know that it's not going to take her long. At the so, time, I, I get it, though. <laughs> I get it, too. Everybody gets it. I mean, when you see people in restaurants who just met and are looking into each other's eyes, and it's so uh, mesmerizing to see that kind of love, but that kind of love, that chemistry, um, evaporates eventually. And the thing with mothers is that, <clears throat> you know, we've learned that when a mother gives birth, she produces all kinds of bonding hormones like endorphins. And to see a mother and a newborn, I have two children of my own. And I remember when those children were born, oh my God, it's like a miracle. It is a miracle mm. to feel this infant was inside of you. And the you and your husband, your lover, your partner, you produce this, right? However, when that child is up four times in the middle of the night, oh my goodness, you feel like ripping out your hair and you're not smiling and you're not cuckooing and you're not rocking. You're thinking, please go back to sleep before I collapse or I'm not going to be able to make it through the next day. So anyway, we start out with a fantasy about what a mother is supposed to be. And the culture really reinforces this. We have so many, just yesterday I met somebody on the street and her daughter is doing such a great job as a journalist. And I said, you should, do you feel so proud? And she said, well, I don't like to take the credit for it. I said, why not? If your daughter was falling apart, wouldn't you take the, the responsibility? So we take responsibility when our children fall apart, but when they do wonderful things, we, you know, we're not so quick. You know, we live in a culture that's very quick to blame parents when the children don't turn out right. Mm -hmm. um, and so mothers have a huge, huge responsibility to do everything right. And it's unrealistic. So, I mean, 
I'm just thinking of that saying, expectations only lead to a road of disappointment. I, I, is it, I won't say our fault, but again, placing too many expectations. How do we achieve a long lasting, healthy relationship with whether it's a lover or relationship or our mother or our father? Our mother or our father. Well, <clears throat> I mean, certainly we know that every relationship can be improved. If you have any long lasting relationship with anyone, you know it has peaks and valleys and it can be improved. So what are a few of the ways that we can improve our relationships? One is by having fun with someone, right? Having fun. Mm -hmm. And what can fun be? Fun can be anything as lovely as taking a hike, you know, in a beautiful terrain. It can be something as simple as going out with your mother and having a manicure together and both of you just sitting next to each other and feeling like, well, isn't this nice? We're just doing this together. We're side by side. It can be cooking. Um, it depends. You know, the problem is for almost every complicated question, the answer always, how does it get better? It depends. It depends. On each situation. Fabric. Yeah, on exactly on each situation and the fabric of the relationship and the personalities of the people involved, right? Yes. I mean, gosh, I'm just thinking of so many different scenarios. Often mothers can place their hopes and fears and dreams on their daughter. And I mean, there's so many scenarios of situations. Each one's an individual situation. Is there a point when, whether again, it's relationship a mother or father that I think there's been so many patterns and ways of doings or there's been so much hurt that it's hard to repair that relationship. You know, I have to say I've been a therapist for 40 years and I would say that every relationship can be improved. There is hardly a, a relationship that cannot be improved. Sometimes what's needed is really the help of a third per person. And that of course could be a therapist. It could be, a family member, it could be a religious person, somebody to help two people sit down and say, how do we make this better? What is it that you really need? And you know, people start with their complaints, right? Yes. You know, you're this, you're that. Why are you always criticizing me? And when I hear a daughter say to a mother or a mother to a daughter, why are you always criticizing me? In my mind, I think behind every criticism is a longing. What is it that that person really wants? And they want to be appreciated. They don't want to be criticized. If my mother doesn't like my hair, I don't want to hear she doesn't like my hair. I want to hear what she does like about me and that she's happy to see me. Does that make sense? Oh my gosh, absolutely. <laughs> um, I've often heard that sometimes the, re the, the relationship well, you've just said any relationship can be improved, but what about if it's unhealthy distancing yourself from a relationship? How, what are your thoughts on that? Well, there are some relationships. There are some relationships that, first of all, there are some relationships where people are too close and too cl and they need more distance. They're not real. They don't want one does not want to be like two peas in a pod. And there are mothers who will say, I feel I can finish your sentences. 
to their daughters or to their husbands. And often those husbands and those daughters want to back away, right? They don't want to feel like somebody is reading their mind. But I think you're asking the question, is estrangement ever an answer? Perfect. You're the therapist. You're doing yes, of course. Yes. I have not come across any situations where I have felt like estrangement is the answer because I have felt I, I can I give you an example? Sure, I'd love you to. A mother came into my office. Her complaint was she wanted to lose weight. Because you know, that's what I specialize in eating and body eating, image. Yeah. But within a very short time, she pulls a letter out of her pocketbook and she says, I think the real reason I'm here is my daughter. And she reads me a letter from her daughter. She said, I haven't seen my daughter who was 26. The mother was, let's say, about 50, early 50s. I haven't seen my daughter in a year. She will not see me. And she reads, starts reading me the letter. And the daughter's letter is filled with one criticism after another. Mm -hmm. You did this. You did that. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. When you got divorced, you didn't pick me up. From at school on time, you were always late. You were always working. You were always in the bathroom with the door closed. When daddy died, you were not sympathetic to me. So the mother reads me this whole long letter. And I say to her, anybody who sits down and writes a letter like this really has a huge desire to, to connect with you. Right? Right, yeah. I said, Why don't you ask your daughter if she'll come into a session? She said, my daughter doesn't answer the phone when I call. Will you call? I said, try again. So she tries again. She comes back the next week. She said she won't answer the phone. Will you call? I thought, what do I have to lose? So I call and the daughter answers the phone. And I say, I'm calling. And wait, the daughter ends the letter by saying, and you're probably reading this letter to a new therapist who doesn't know how awful you are. And she, you're probably telling her how awful I am. So I, the daughter answers the phone. I say, hi, I'm the new therapist. Your mother just, your mother just, read me this letter and she said, well, she, she thinks that she'd like to make peace with me, but forget her. And I said, well, you wrote that letter. And in my experience, anybody who writes a letter like that really wants to make peace with their mother, would you be willing to give her another chance? Would you be willing to come in? And the daughter lived an hour and a half away. She said, if my mother comes to pick me up and drives me, to your office. I will. I said, well, you know, you could take the train here. She said, oh no, my mother, she owes me. She can come pick me up. So I tell the mother, I say, would you be willing to pick her up? She said, absolutely not. She's 26 years old. She doesn't work. I'm working my butt off. I guess she looked at my face and she said, well, what do you think I should do? And you know, therapists are not supposed to tell what they think the patient should yeah. do. But I said, you're a good mind. You, you read my expression. I thought if I had a daughter who didn't talk to me for a year, would I go pick her up? I thought I'd go pick her up. I said, I would take the day off. I'd go pick my daughter up. So she picks her daughter up and they come in and the daughter wants to spend the whole first session talking about what's wrong with the mother. And I let her, I let her, she needed it. She needed to vent. And it was really hard for the mother. And I said, please listen, 
reflect back what she's saying. This is how she feels. These are her deepest feelings. I promise you, you will get your turn. It might not be 50-50 this session, but she needs to get this off her chest. And the daughter got it off her chest and the mother had tears in her eyes. And I said to the daughter, what, what do you feel when you see those tears? And the daughter like collapsed. You know, she had to get it out. And when she saw the mother's tears and because I really was pretty good about silencing the mother, she moved closer to the mother. And I said, I'm looking at your body language and I see you moving closer. I said, don't get too close, come back next week. And within three sessions, things got better. And I, I'll never forget this. The daughter sat on the bed, uh, sat on the, the chair, telling the mother things she remembered from her childhood, how unhappy she was, how she would sit on her mother's bed, how she would play with her mother's jewelry. And the mother would always be looking in the mirror and ignoring her. And the mother said, no, you didn't understand what was really going on. And it's such a long story. Mm -hmm. And we allowed the long story to involve, to evolve. And two years later, that mother's husband died of a heart attack. And that daughter took a taxi an hour and a half to her mother's house to help her mother. And it was like, wow, you know, they, they repaired it. So uh, my experience has been, now, of course, my experience has been this was a mother who came to a session wanting to repair a relationship with a daughter. And the daughter could have not answered the phone. She could have hung up on me. The very fact that she didn't hang up on me is a good sign, right? Yes. It's a good sign. Um, we talk about childhood trauma, whatever capacity it might be, and emotional scars. It, I mean... It doesn't mean it's, I mean, obviously there's no judgment on your part as a therapist, but we hold on to so much from a time in the past that may not be the exact sequence of events or why, but we hold on to it and it affects our whole lives and, and our, all our relationships. And all our relationships. So, you know, there's a saying, we've learned so much about the brain in the last 20 years, and there's a saying the brain has Velcro for, for the negative and Teflon for the positive because we are wired to protect ourselves. So when a child has had a trauma, they will remember that. They're, they will remember anything that smells of that situation, anything that smells of danger. And so once a child has been injured in any kind of a way, they're on alert. And so very often, all the nice things that have happened sort of recede into the background. And what they remember is that they were really hurt. They will remember the time that they couldn't have dessert. I mean, after all, think about a child having a temper tantrum. What is happening? And we as adults, we continue to have temper tantrums. We just don't lie down on the floor and kick our feet right. and bang the floor. But when we get wounded or when we get hurt, we have our own little temper tantrum and we're reenacting often a hurt place from deep down inside. And what we really want is comfort, but we don't get comfort as adults. We're told to kind of grow up and get over it. And we really want comfort. And that's what most people want at every age, right? Safety, want, to safety. be heard, 
I guess. To be heard. Right. So if a daughter doesn't have a healthy relationship with their mother, how does it affect their uh, romantic relationships? Obviously, oh. there's no, you can't generalise. I understand that. But. You can't generalise, but, you know, there are so many old adages. The way we were loved is the way we expect to be loved. So right. if you expect to be loved, you give somebody room. And once the relationship sours, you don't give them room anymore. You know, I mean, here's a great example. Uh, if somebody is married and their husband has too much to drink on a Friday night, he goes out drinking after work. And the next morning he has a terrible hangover. The mom says to the kids, oh, dad is really tired. He and his buddies went out. They had such a party. They had too much to drink. However, if the mother is divorced from that guy and uh, the kids and the child says, daddy had too much to drink, she says, yeah, that's why I got divorced from him. Your father, he's a drinker. He's an alcoholic. What do I want to be married to an alcoholic for? So we have so many, we can always look at the situation from different perspectives and to really acknowledge that, yeah, a trauma, a trauma is not only what happened, but it's how it's experienced. And one can tell a story over and over and over and over that just digs that trauma in deeper, right? And the hard feelings. And if a parent really wants to apologize, I am so sorry I picked you up late. You are right. I had so much work and I, I was flooded when I got divorced and I couldn't manage everything. And I wasn't always the best mother. And I'm so sorry. When someone can say that as a grown, as a 50-year-old mother to their 26-year-old daughter, and I, the therapist, say, look into your mother's eyes. Do you believe her? And sometimes the, the daughter will say, no. And I'll say, well, what do you need from your mother? She'll say, I don't know what I need. That's because she has blinders on, right? right? I'll say, well, look again, look again. And I say to the mom, think about what it was like for your daughter. You know, I'm asking people to stand in each other's shoes. Ask a 26-year-old to think what it's like to be divorced with three kids and be the primary breadwinner. <clears throat> And ask a mother what she thinks it was like for her eight-year-old daughter to be the last one picked up. And if you do it from a heartfelt place and really ask these people to stand in each other's shoes, very often you can get a little movement. And that's one of the things I do. I look for movement. I look for little embers of growth. You know, embers of growth. What would it be like to let in that that mother that you had, she really did do that. She really picked you up late. Yes. And how, and how does she feel now about it? How does she feel now about it? Now, there are people who will not let, you know, the new mom in. You know, they will not let the mom who wants to heal in. So... That takes more work, and sometimes it doesn't work. Yes. Sometimes it doesn't. Compassion. You... Yeah. yeah. No, I'm, I'm just thinking compassion as well. That's so important. You don't know what anyone else's reality is like. And it, again, goes back to your perception. You can have two children in exactly the same circumstances with completely different perceptions of their mother or their parents. Um, you spoke earlier about... Um, 
and this is a huge one, divorce, I guess, uh, mothers or parents speaking negatively about the other, um, about the parent. How does that affect child? Yeah, well, you know, I wrote a book. My The book before this was called Befriending Your Ex After Divorce. Oh, great Maybe. title. <laughs> Making Life Better for You, Your Kids, and Yes, Your Ex. And this book was based on my life because I did get divorced. And it wasn't easy and the beginning was not smooth. But my husband and I, my ex-husband and I, really did make a priority of keeping the children, keeping the best interest of our kids in mind. Mm -hmm. And the logo on the bottom of my book was divorce ends a marriage, not a family, that we can still be parents and we can still have the best interest of the children. And it is always in the best interest of the children to have two parents, unless one of the parents is an axe murderer. I mean, even things that we think of as not optimal, like if someone's an alcoholic, like if they're a drug addict, so what? Drug addicts get rehabilitated and alcoholics do too. And people go through terrible phases of their life, but you only have one chance to have a parent. Now you can have a step parent, but to, to, to repair the relationship with your biological parent usually brings a lot of grace into somebody's life. It, to feel like my biological parent is a loser really leaves a child, a boy or a girl with a scar if my father is a loser or my mother is a loser, maybe I'm a loser, right? Yeah. So it's really, I think, always important for parents to try very hard. It's not always possible when somebody has swindled the other person out of all the money that the two of them made over a long period of time, it's pretty hard to be more than cold and cordial. And, but still, the example I gave, parents do not have to tell their children everything. The children can find out as they get older who that person was. Gosh, so many intricacies of these relationships. It's incredible. I, I just thought of the quote you said before, and I love it. Um, how, what was it? How you were loved is how you expect to be loved. Do you mind just discussing that a little bit more? Yeah, that if someone grew up feeling that most of the time their needs were met, that when they came home from school, there was somebody there who cared about them. You know, when they were a baby, most of the time their needs were met. They internalize that feeling of well-being. My needs will be met. Mm. And, uh, you know, the book that I wrote, um, I, I, I wrote this book because after my mother died, I realized how much I missed her. And I had carried my own grudges from things that she did that really I couldn't let go of. And I'm a psychologist and I asked myself, why can't I let go of these things? This woman was not a monster, but I couldn't let go of them. And in writing the book, I really came to think about how my mother had been there for me in so many ways. Uh, can I tell like the, the story that the book opens with? I'd love you to. 
the story that the book opens with is that I'm a psychologist. I'm leading a workshop, um, helping mothers and daughters bond. And all of a sudden, I remember this betrayal by my mother. And the story is a pretty icky story. My mother told me I was going to a birthday party, my cousin Winnie's birthday party. And I got all dressed up in a party dress. And instead of going to my cousin Winnie's birthday party, I went to the hospital. And I had my tonsils taken out. And she oh. left me there. And I had just recurring flashbacks as to what it was like to be on the stretcher, have the mask come down over my mouth. And I probably, and, and the next day wake up and I'm in the hospital and I'm told by the nurse, oh, you had your tonsils out. Your mom will be here at visiting hours. And when I got older and I went to therapy myself, the therapist like almost fell off his chair when I told this story. And he said, did you ever really talk to your mother about this? And I said, I did. And he said, well, what, why did she say she did that? And I said, she said she did that because she said that's what the doctor told her to do. Um, and so I went back and I said to my mother, I want to talk to you about this again. And my mother repeated the same thing. And she said, but what's the difference? Because look, you turned out fine. And I said, well, it is a difference because it was very, very hurtful. And she said, well, that's what the doctor told us. And I was really mad. I felt like she didn't really act empathic. She just wanted to say, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. Rather than, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Rather than, I have to think about what it would be like to be eight years old and be in, think I was going to a birthday party and wind up in the hospital alone by myself. However, fast forward 20 years and my own father had cancer, my mother's husband. Mm -hmm. And so at that time, my mother and father were married and uh, my father was diagnosed with cancer and he was given a terminal sentence and he was 53 years old. And the doctor told us, don't tell your father he's dying. When you tell people they're dying, they give up. Now, if you think about that, that doesn't even make sense in the year 2021, right? But anyway, and I wrote in the book a chapter about what that was like as my father was dying. And we kept telling my father, you're doing, you're doing fine, dad. And he kept saying, I'm not doing fine. I mean, he's sitting there with an oxygen tank and he says, I'm shriveling away. Your mother is giving me potatoes and chocolate cake for every meal and I'm not doing fine. And none of us told the truth because... The doctor told us. And it wasn't until I wrote this book that I thought down, sat down and I thought, well, why did we really do that? I mean, I know it's true. The doctor did tell us. And I thought, you know, first of all, doctors make mistakes. <clears throat> this all happened back in the 70s. Uh, second of all, we didn't have an internet where you run home and everything a doctor tells you, you check, you know, and you get second opinions right away. You Google all. You Google everything. And third of all, I mean, maybe we weren't prepared to tell him he was dying because that's really hard. And lots of people, and I, I really thought long and hard about that. Did I do that because I had been raised that way to think it's okay to tell little white lies? Because in the name of not hurting someone, I guess also your mother didn't, your mother didn't agree, didn't respond to you exactly how you wanted her to respond she wasn't as sympathetic she wasn't 
listening to the trauma that you've had having your tonsils out when you were told you were going to a birthday party. I mean, that's another issue. And you talked about being sympathetic and putting yourself in each other's shoes when a relationship, whether it's a mother or a child, not, not being compassionate or not perhaps not answering in the way you want them to, you, at some point you just have to accept that, I guess. I know, but I hear with my father, I mean, I was a grown adult. I wasn't yet a psychologist, but I did not put myself in my father's shoes yeah. and think, what is it like to be dying? I mean, probably that was way too mind boggling for me to even think about then. I did not put myself in my father's shoes now if I think about it. And so now we know differently. We know if someone is dying, it's a beautiful thing to sit with someone who's dying. When my mother was dying, I sat with her and I said to her, mom, when you're ready to let go, I'm here. I'll hold your hand. Mm. I know. So, I mean, we make mistakes. We do the wrong things. We do things, we do thoughtless things. We don't think everything through. And they're not intentionally necessarily to be cruel or to be hurtful. It's, it's a, maybe an unconscious way of operating or not being necessarily aware of the other. Not being aware of the other. I mean, I don't know who's listening, but 50% of adults in the United States are divorced. Mm -hmm. And probably 50% of the people who got divorced had no idea all the ramifications for the rest of your life if you have children on the children, that for the rest of the children's lives, every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, every holiday, every vacation, am I going to be with mom? Am I going to be with dad? Do I go to dad's for Christmas Eve and mom's for Christmas Day? How are they going to work this out? And most people, when they get divorced, they just think I'm a good person. I'll be fair. But they don't think of what this really means for a child Whose house am I going to be at for my birthday? Where am I going to be for my mom's birthday? Where am I going to be for my dad's birthday? Who's going to come to my graduation? Are they going to sit together? Are they going to glare at each other? Are we going to go out together after I graduate from sixth grade, eighth grade, 10th grade, high school, college, and then the weddings and then everything else, right? Mm. So the person you get divorced from I mean, divorce does end a marriage, but it does not end a family, right? It doesn't, it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to end a family. Uh, um, so I'm going to ask you about tips because it just helps the audience. What are your tips for people are in, that are in the process or have divorced to um, put the children first or uh, not end the family? Well, to really understand that being a parent has nothing to do with being a husband or a wife. And that if you married somebody, maybe you can collaborate with that person or on all sorts of things. Um, that can you put all the reasons you got divorced aside and think it's really important that we can make a new policy about certain of these things. We can both be together on the first day of school. You know, when Johnny goes to a brand new school for second grade, we can both take him to school or we can both go visit him at summer camp and we don't have to glare at each other and we don't have to be best friends but we do have to be co-parents and for me it was such a relief that if I had if I was ill 
or something that my ex-husband, I can remember a time I had the kids and he came over with some food from the supermarket. And when I wrote that book, um, people would tell me my ex-husband came over and he shoveled me out when it snowed during a blizzard because he knew I'm really afraid. You know, I can't shovel. And my husband came over and he drove the kids to school because he knows I don't like to drive in the snow. And that's just doing it for the kids. But it is also doing it for your spouse. It's who knows you better than your ex-spouse if you've been married for, you know, several years and you've had children. And so the tips are to keep the well-being of the children in the front of your mind and to keep your own personal animosity away from the children that they 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 get it. They are suffering with it. Their lives are more scarred by it in a certain way than the adults who often go ahead and find a new partner. You know, or at least they have that option. But the children have not do not always have an option of getting a new family. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they're lucky and they have two families because they get mom in her remarried family or repartnered family and dad in his repartnered family. But I mean, being able to compromise with somebody who you were married to and couldn't compromise with them is not easy. It takes a lot of work and a lot of um, consciousness and a lot of thoughtfulness, being able to think what is best for my children what do I owe my children? Yes. It really it's heartbreaking, right? It, it breaks my heart and my children have grown now. Yeah. You know? They're, I mean, I was going to ask you about the tips of the mother-daughter relationship to have a healthy or somewhat healthy relationship. They're kind of parallel as well. There's similar um, ways, but I guess it's putting yourself first because Ultimately, if you have a positive relationship with your mother, you have a positive relationship with yourself. Well, I think that we don't really always understand the carrying a grudge, you know, and even, you know, almost everybody in America has had some kind of traumas. For example, uh, one of the things I, I also wrote about in my book is when now we know that being bullied as an elementary school child or a high school child or being teased, a kid being called gay or you're gay or you're a fag or people whispering about you, whispering about your hair, about your eyes, about your family, about your clothes. These things are actually, they're traumatic. No, they're not as traumatic as being beaten every day of your life, mm -hmm. right? They're not. But they, they really leave lasting scars. Um, and very often parents think they're doing the right thing when they kind of tell kids, you'll get over it. Right. Uh, recently, I read an article on uh, toxic positivity. Great title. So toxic positivity, just you'll get over it. And I was particularly interested in that because my mother had a touch of that. Everything was, everything will be fine. You'll get over it. And look at you, aren't you fine? But that doesn't mean I didn't suffer when the girls in my fifth grade class would tease me and would wait at the schoolyard gate and would poke fun at me and make jokes about me. And it's so hurtful. And what I really needed was somebody who would say, I'm so sorry you're going through this. It's really painful. 
you know, maybe parents think they have to fix everything, but I think yes. what children really need most is compassion. But getting back to, so how do we repair the mother-daughter relationship? And so the first thing is, is it possible? This, this is, I have an exercise that I do, so I'd like to do it right here. Amazing. It's called, Tara Brack is the person who has um, popularized it. And she's a Buddhist teacher. And it's called the RAIN exercise. And maybe we'll do it right now. Everybody think of, let's think of your mother. But if you have a great relationship with your mother, think of somebody in your life who you don't have a great relationship with. And what's it like to recognize? That's the R in the word RAIN. This exercise is called RAIN. Recognize that this relationship leaves me feeling very unsatisfied. So what is it like to feel disappointed or betrayed or unsatisfied or gypped? Can I recognize that? And can I allow for that? That's the A. Can I allow? Can I acknowledge? Can I just sit with? I didn't get everything I needed. I didn't get maybe much of what I needed. And can I, I investigate? Well, what was that like for me not to get what I needed? And this is a crucial part of the work of therapy because often we find out when we didn't get what we needed, we actually became stronger. You know, I think that's what Hemingway says. He says, some of us get strong in the broken places. And beautiful. that, yeah, beautiful, right? And that we get when we didn't get everything we need, we learned to take care of ourselves, and ultimately, that's what we have to learn anyway. So we investigate what was it like when I was a neglected, or an abused child, or I had to live through these traumatic things—the fights of my parents, being tormented at school—and the last letter is N which stands for nurture. And what is it like for me to nurture myself? What is it like for me to bring compassion to myself, self-compassion? And if I bring self-compassion for myself, maybe I don't need to say so angry at the person over there, whether that's my mother or my husband or my ex-husband or, I don't know, a neighbor who's not being very kind to me and I feel like it's kind of setting me up as a bad mother to saying bad things about me. So if we take better care of ourselves, we don't have to walk around feeling so angry and so resentful and so expecting that somebody else will do it for us. R-A-I-N. Anybody listening can look it up on the internet because there are lots of examples. And we all do carry grudges. And that is what I learned I learned in writing this book to appreciate, oh, that's another thing about A. You have to acknowledge what it is you feel and you have to appreciate your own strengths. And so although my mother did certain things that really left me feeling neglected, she also gave me many gifts. And one of them is she gave me a great sense of adventure and she, it started with a cute story that I won't have time to tell right now about how she 
allowed me to get a pair of red boots and how after I brought those boots home, I wouldn't take them off. And the next morning I got out of bed, she got out of bed and she said, where's Judy? And I was four years old. She couldn't find me. And eventually she looked outside and there I was riding my tricycle up and down in front of the house, wearing nothing at all, but my red boots. Oh, I love that. <laughs> it's a great story, right? And what my, my mother used to love to tell that story and she never yelled at me and she didn't shame me. Oh my God, my daughter was naked out on the block. She said, that's my Judy. She always had such a sense of adventure. She always danced to her own drummer. And she would tell that story on many, many occasions about kind of the zest for life, which in fact is true. And in fact, I do have, despite the things. That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening. And please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and spread the passion. As always, every day, may you be more and more passionate.